and welcome to Theology Matters. This is Dr. John Clark. And today we want to continue on the topic of eternal security. We've looked at some objections in the Gospels, and today uh, we want to move forward into some objections in the Pauline epistles. And uh, before we do, I just want to have uh, just a kind of a quick couple of comments of review. When we talk about the term eternal security, uh, we're using a definition from our friends at Duluth Bible Church, which which is a very thorough definition. And it reads this, eternal security means that one who has been genuinely saved by God's grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone shall never be in danger of God's condemnation or loss of his salvation, but are kept forever saved and secure by God's grace and power. And so when we talk about eternal security, we're talking about the certainty of a person's salvation from God's viewpoint. Eternal security is is never in doubt because God knows who has put their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and who is not. And so the moment that transaction happens, that person is eternally secure. And we've looked at reasons why we believe the, the scriptures teach that. When we talk about assurance of salvation now, we're talking about the certainty of a person's salvation from man's viewpoint, from their own viewpoint. And and oftentimes this is this fluctuates and this is what gives people concern and problems. They they wonder if they clearly understand what God's saying in his word. They wonder if they can truly ever know whether or not they're saved. And once a person's assurance of salvation or their thinking comes in line with what the scriptures teach and they're able to trust and believe the scriptures at face value, then they too can experience assurance of salvation. And so that's how we make the distinguishing comments between the two. And so one of the things that always comes up in the topic of eternal security are passages which to some people are problem passages or prove that you can't be eternally secure or that you could never be assured of your salvation on this side of heaven. And so we're looking at some of those passages in this podcast. And the next passage we want to look at is in the Pauline epistle of 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, very common passage uh, that many people will go to. And so let's just read the passage and then we'll kind of come back and, and talk about the context and work our way through. Verse 11 says this, this is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And so some quick context in 2 Timothy, when you see that phrase, this is a faithful saying, um, those verses, and, and you'll see a lot of Bibles will kind of italicize uh, verses 11 through 13 or or indent uh, verses 11 through 13. And it seems uh, just from history, this the, the, the verses here may have formed uh, part of an early hymn that was kind of known and accepted uh, as a quotation amongst early believers. It was something that uh, may have been taught in terms of trying to communicate truth and something that had been memorized. But he says, this is a faithful saying, and that kind of indicates that um, this was a commonly accepted saying in the early church. And so the major point of the hymn is this, it's to encourage believers to respond faithfully to the Lord during this life, again, compelling them toward discipleship, right? That's the Great Commission is to make disciples, 
Why? Because believers have so much to look forward to in the next life. It's not a compelling them to respond a certain way so that they don't lose their salvation. It's based on the fact that they are secure in the Lord. Why not move forward toward discipleship in this life? And and oh, by the way, it's going to benefit you in the life to come as well uh, by way of rewards. And so this quotation uh, follows verses 9 through 10, which reinforces the principle that present suffering will be followed by future glory. Look at verse 9. He says, For which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not changed. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And so what is Paul talking about? Present suffering followed by future glory. And then he quotes this well-known teaching in verses 11 through 13, again, encouraging the believer to go forward with the Lord in discipleship, because as an old hymn used to say, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. And that's kind of the the encouragement here in the passage. And and one of the things that we also want to note before we get into the passage is this. You'll notice that verse 11, verse 12, verse 13, all start with the word if. In fact, you'll notice that uh, if is also repeated in verse 12. It's actually used twice in verse 12. And what we want to point out before we get started is that Paul uses the, st- the same Greek grammatical structure for each of those ifs. They are all what we, call, what we would call first-class conditional statements in the Greek. Now, first-class conditional statements assume the fulfillment of the condition for argument's sake. In other words, you could say, if this is true, if XYZ is true, and let's assume that it is for argument's sake, then that ABC will happen. And so it, what we're doing is is Paul is using a, a form of argument, assuming that the reality of what he just said is going to be true. And, and you'll find a lot of times in the New Testament that this conditional structure is often translated since. It's assuming the reality of the statement. It's, it's a way of saying that this is true without just coming out and saying it this is true. He's building, he, he's using this structure to kind of build an argument for what follows. And so uh, now that we have that context, let's let's dive into that first phrase in verse 11. He says, again, this is a faithful saying. And then, for if we died with Christ, or if we, if we died with him, we shall also live with him. And so again, if we died with Christ, and we did, we shall also live live with him. This is what the statement is saying. In fact, the first conditional statement is pretty simple. And this is truth that's taught all over the word of God is something that has already happened to each and every believer. It doesn't say crucify yourself or kill yourself or anything like that. This isn't a command. This is an assumed reality of something that's already happened. Well, when did it happen? Well, Romans 6, 6 talks about this. It says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Colossians 2.20 uses the same exact structure that we find here in 2 Timothy. Colossians 2.20 says this, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, and let's assume that you did, or you might even just say, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, and you did, why, as though living in the world, you subject yourselves to regulations? Galatians 
right? Very familiar verse. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, or it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so we see the fact of our co-crucifixion with Christ is taught all throughout the scriptures. In fact, it's the key principle or truth that we need to understand and know, as Paul says in Romans 6, three times, that we need to know this truth and count on this truth to experience deliverance from the power of sin. This is God's method of delivering the believer from the power of sin in their daily life. So the point is this, if we died with Christ, and we did, then what? We shall also live with him. And so the guarantee here is that we will live with him. This is a promise, by the way, designed to encourage us. If we died with Christ and we did, we shall also live with him guaranteed. That's the point of that first phrase. And so now we move to the second phrase. Again, another first class condition. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. First class condition says, if we endure, and let's assume for argument's sake that we will. And and, and in fact, Paul is assuming that the believer at different aspects of their life are going to endure, that that is going to be an outcome for believers. Now, what does the word endure mean? It's the Greek word, hupomeno. It means to remain under. It means to persevere. It means to bear up under. And because it's in the present tense, it emphasizes right now. It's talking about your personal life right now as a believer on this earth. And he's assuming that believers in in some fashion, form, or another will endure. Now, he's not saying that a true believer will do this perfectly. What is said, he's assuming is true of every believer. And so one of the things that uh, you'll see, and in fact, no one does this perfectly, right? Because James uses this same exact word, hupameno, but he uses it in noun form when he says that the testing of your faith produces patience. And that's that's the word there, patience. And so if patience grows or is produced, it, it, it describes a process. It doesn't describe something that necessarily automatically happens or that, that we would be perfect in. And so although no one does this perfectly, a disciple who is faithful in life will have a more privileged position or role in the future administration of Christ's kingdom. And so what we're seeing here is that if if we endure, and let's assume for argument's sake that we will, you'll, you'll reign with him. And so the guarantee is that we're going to reign with him. Again, it's, it's designed, it's a promise designed to encourage us. It's a promise designed to encourage us to more faithfully endure and trust the Lord through trials. But the encouragement is, hey, we're going to endure. Let's, there are going to be times where we don't, obviously. There are going to be times where we walk according to the flesh, but there are going to be times where maybe even in, in small or large trials, we endure at some level. This is what Paul is assuming the reality. And as a result, he says, we'll reign with him. That's, that's a guaranteed promise designed to encourage the believer. And then we come to the next phrase. And, and this is the one that really gets people. This is the one that really distracts people. But again, following the pattern of what Paul has been talking about, he says, if we deny him, he also will deny us. 
Again, first class condition. If we deny him, and let's assume for argument's sake that we will, and 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 that's what's assumed. It's not if we deny him and and true believers won't. It is if we deny him and every believer at some level will deny him. This word deny means to refuse someone or to reject someone. Many people will say, well, you know, you can be saved, but if you reject Jesus Christ, then you can lose your salvation or you can, you'll prove that you never had it if you reject him. This verse assumes that at some level, every believer will deny or reject Jesus Christ. And so the, the word deny here is used in the middle voice, which indicates that we do the action, that the believer does the action of denying, and then they receive the consequences of their action. Now, question, um, and, and before I get to the question, it, it, let me just say one more thing about the middle voice. In other words, uh, we may deny Christ because we feel like we will suffer persecution or ridicule if we do not. Uh, we may reject Christ because we're not happy with the circumstances of our life and we want somebody to blame. And so we, we lash out at God. But the, the point of the middle voice is that we are doing it. Uh, we are committing the action or doing the action of denying with, with the resultant benefit or consequence coming back on us. So there's lots of reasons that people may deny the Lord. It may be to, to avoid ridicule, like I mentioned. Now, if this is assumed that it will happen, that we will deny him, how could this be talking about a loss of salvation? Because nobody would be saved. If, if the standard by keeping your salvation was not to deny Christ, Paul is assuming here that every believer is going to deny him at some point or in some level or some fashion. So clearly, if that was the standard to remain saved, nobody would be saved. And then he comes to this next phrase, if we deny him, and let's assume for argument's sake that we will, it says he also will deny us. By the way, future indicative, and it represents a guaranteed promise. And so what is this denial all about? Well, we'll pick up there in our next opportunity. 